This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We do get good treatment of diabetes with a sleeve gastrectomy, but we get better treatment with a gastric bypass. We also get better weight loss with a gastric bypass, and both of those randomized controlled trials. And so I look at someone, if their body mass index is above 50, I lean towards a bypass. If they're diabetic, I sleep, lean towards a bypass. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. everyone. Welcome back to Wellness Fact versus Fiction. And today we have a phenomenal guest on who I am super excited to explore all things bariatric surgery and obesity medicine with. It's Dr. Garth Davis. He is not only a friend of mine, but he's a brilliant surgeon. So he's a board certified bariatric surgeon and also in obesity medicine. He's been in practice for over 20 years. He's currently the medical director for the Houston Methodist Center for Weight Loss and Bariatric Surgery. And by the way, the Houston Center is unbelievable. Methodist in Houston is just incredible. I know they have a really robust and unbelievable cardiology program. And Garth is the medical director for their weight loss and bariatric surgery program. So I am so thankful you were able to take the time out today to chat about bariatric surgery with us, Garth. Well, thanks, Danielle. It's my favorite topic. So that's a good topic to talk about. Okay, Garth, before we started recording, I was just telling you that I personally, like, even when I was reading the guidelines for bariatric surgery, I realized how much I don't even know, remember, or truly understand not only the basic anatomy of everything there, but also the different kinds of interventions. And I think it's because during my surgery rotation, I was just constantly trying to scrub out. So I (laughs) don't think I um, got a full understanding of bariatrics. So I was wondering if you could start from the beginning with giving everyone a rundown of actually just the normal gastrointestinal GI anatomy for anyone listening, just before we get into the different kinds of surgery and things like that. Sure. Yeah, the physiology is fascinating. You got to understand a lot of these new medications that are coming out are based on some of the physiological changes in surgery. And when I look at the anatomy and physiology of the GI tract, I'm actually shocked we don't have more obesity. Because if you think about it, we were uh, evolved during a time of feast or famine. I mean, calorie excess is a blip on the map of the human uh, evolution. And we evolved during times where we couldn't eat a lot. And so when you look at the evolution of the human body, it is perfectly designed to eat a lot of food and to store that fat and to protect fat stores. So we have a really large stomach. 
When I take the stomach out of the body, I can blow fluid into it and blow it up like a big balloon. It's got no actually way. elastic fibers in it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very elastic. It's very stretchable. The stomach itself secretes a hormone called ghrelin, which feeds back to the very primitive parts of the brain. So we're talking about the hypothalamus, which, as you know, controls autonomic nervous system. So we're talking about this is the part of the brain that controls your breath, your heart rate, metabolism that controls hunger. And so, you know, people think that, oh, someone, this is a willpower issue. This has nothing to do with willpower. A lot, I, I hear people say I'm an emotional eater. Yes, there is some emotional eating, but a lot of time it's not emotional eating. It is in fact a physiologic mechanism. A lot of it has to do with ghrelin hormone. It has to do with other hormones in the body. Um, we know there's several hormones that affect satiety, such as PYY and the incretin secretors, the GLP-1 and GLP. We don't have to get into all the fancy letters. Suffice it to say that our GI tract and our human physiology is designed to make us eat, designed to make us store. And certain people are affected more by these. And we know that because you could take an obese patient and do a functional MRI of their brain. And if you show them a food, their brain's going to light up a lot more than someone else. And this has also to do with dopamine receptors in the brain. And we can go on and on about the origins of obesity. But I state that because when you look at the GI tract, it is perfectly designed to make someone eat. And when you lose weight, you lose fat. When you lose fat, you lose leptin. And that also feeds back to the brain. And so our brain is designed to protect us. And our stomach is designed to make us eat. And our hormones in our GI system are designed to make sure that we get a meal when food's around. So back in the 1950s, they noticed something. We had a lot of ulcer disease at the time. And when you got ulcer disease, we had to cut out a large part of the stomach, of the acid secreting part of the stomach, leaving just a small stomach. And then we would take a piece of intestine and attach it to that, that small piece of stomach. And we noticed people lost a lot of weight with this. And that was the original basis for the gastric bypass. Wow. So with a gastric bypass surgery, what we are doing is we start at the very top part of the stomach, right where the esophagus comes in, a few centimeters down, and we divide, we use a stapler and we divide the stomach across and then up so that we create a tiny little pouch of stomach. The remaining stomach still secretes digestive juices. Those go down to the duodenum and into the small intestine. Now, at a certain length in the small intestine, and we could get to this because that length is really important. At a certain length in the small intestine, we divide the small intestine and we take one limb up to that stomach and the other limb we attach down there. So we create a Y. One, one limb carries the food, one limb carries the digestive juices from the liver and the pancreas, then they meet up together. So it's a ruin Y gastric bypass. Wow. Now, <laughs> those limbs are very important, and we could get to that. So that was the original idea. That was the gastric bypass. Now, over the years, the gastric bypass has changed tremendously. It started as an open procedure. It started as a very dangerous procedure. Now it is a laparoscopic procedure, meaning it's done with very small incisions. Uh, the pouch is smaller than we used to make it. The way we make the pouch is different. We don't need to get into that exact science unless you want to. Now we're really looking at limb lengths because we know there's these new medications out. Ozempic, Manjaro, they are working on uh, these hormones that are secreted by what are called incretin cells. Well, incretin cells occur further on down the small intestine. So the sooner food gets to the incretin cells, the more of the incretin secretion we get. So it turns out that if I lengthen the the limbs so that the food is getting to the ileum faster, 
we get more of a GLP one response. It's almost like having con- continuous Manjuro or Ozempic secreted in your system, which is how they came up with these meds to begin with. Uh, so limb length has become a real big uh, issue. We we spend lots of science discussing limb length. That's another issue. But that was the gastric bypass for a while. And in fact, limb length became such a big issue that at one point in the early 70s, they decided to try something different. Instead of cutting the stomach, they said, what if we just cut the intestine and just plug it into the colon? Whoa. Now, that wasn't really based on Anchorage, and that was based on the fact that what if we just bypass all the intestines because the small intestines where food is absorbed. Mm-hmm. And so if we just make the small intestine smaller, so most weight loss surgeries are restrictive. In other words, they make it where you can't eat as much food. So with a bypass, we have a small pouch. You can't eat as much food. With what was called a jejunal ileal bypass, the idea was eat as much food as you want. You're just not going to absorb that food. So if you're not absorbing that food, you're not absorbing the calories. The problem was if you're not absorbing that food, you're also not absorbing the nutrients. And these people got really sick. But that surgery was then altered into what is now called the duodenal switch. And the duodenal switch, that's complicated. But suffice it to say, it's a bypass procedure where we're bypassing a lot of intestine, but leaving enough intestine where you absorb enough critical nutrients. So that's another surgery. It's not as done as as commonly, but it is a very, very, very good weight loss surgery. The problem is there's lots of complications involved. We could get to that with nutritional deficiencies. Then on the other spectrum that went away from this idea of bypassing any intestine is the sleeve gastrectomy. The sleeve gastrectomy, the idea behind the sleeve gastrectomy was we have this big redundant stomach, this big floppy stomach, and that stomach secretes a hormone called ghrelin. So what if we cut out the redundant part of the stomach, but leave just a smooth tube from the esophagus all the way down to the small intestine, almost a banana-shaped stomach instead of a water bottle-shaped stomach? And that's what we do in that surgery. We cut the blood vessels to the what's called greater curve of the stomach. We have anesthesia pass a calibrated tube through the stomach, which we pass into the intestine, and we just staple along that tube. In the sleeve gastrectomy, you're not going to get as much of an incretin response as you are with the bypass. You are going to get a ghrelin response because we're removing ghrelin hormone by removing most of the stomach where ghrelin hormone is secreted. And obviously, you now have a resistance to the amount of food you can eat. There have been some other surgeries that have been around. The lap band simply put a band at the top part of the stomach with a tube that went to a little port that sat underneath the skin. And I could then, someone could come in and say, look, I'm eating a lot of food. I could feel where that port is. I could inject fluid, which would go along that tube and blow up a balloon in that band and further constrict how much the person ate. Problem with the lap band was it's not doing anything on incretins or um, orexigenic hormones. So people would be very hungry. And so we would have to continuously tighten that thing. But now we're tightening it to where they can't eat good foods. So they ended up eating bad foods and it just wasn't that successful in surgery. So those are the main surgical procedures done. There's now variations, like you might hear your single anastomosis duodenal switch. This is the really big new surgery that's out there, which is kind of a combination between a sleeve and a bypass and a duodenal switch. We do a sleeve and then we cut the intestine of the duodenum and plug it in halfway down the intestine, a little bit further than halfway. These are all kinds of things we're working on to try to perfect the surgery. Woof, okay, so... 
that is a mouthful. So to take it back a little bit, this is really fascinating because what's super interesting is I think that people are under the misconception that a lot of bariatric surgery just includes the physical removal or the like limitation of the stomach size as the mechanism for weight loss or reducing appetite. But what you've so eloquently explained is that there's actually a huge neurohormonal portion to this, like you mentioned with the incretin hormones and all of the GLP receptors and everything um, ghrelin. It's just super interesting for people to understand that it's not just a mechanical change. Um, it's also a hormonal change. So what is currently the most then common uh, sort of bariatric surgeries you are doing for weight loss at this time? And how do you decide which for which patient? Yeah. You know, funny enough, as you, as you bring that up, I, the stomach size is probably one of the lesser parts of it. So we've looked right. at sleeve gastrectomy, the different sizes of the sleeve gastrectomy with those tubes. In larger tubes, size sleeve gastrectomies don't seem to have a big difference with smaller tube size and weight loss. And in fact, with weight regain, we've gone back and looked at pouch size and it doesn't seem to make a difference. And so there's something beyond that. And in right. fact, they did a study showing that... Uh, uh, GLP secretion after surgery is a big predictor of long-term success. There's other things too. If we really want to get into it, microbiome, et cetera, et cetera. So there's uh, there's there's actually a big thought. Um, uh, Lee Kaplan's group at Harvard has done some very interesting stuff, albeit mainly in rats, but looking at gastric bypass and diverting the bile stream and how that affects the microbiome and how that may play a role in long-term weight loss. But yeah, suffice to say, it's not just stomach size. In fact, uh, there's, there's a lot more than the stomach size. But back to your question, let's simplify this and say, when do we do what surgery and what surgery should be done? The vast, in fact, across the world, the surgery that is done the most right now is sleeve gastrectomy. The sleeve gastrectomy really started being done. I think I did the my first one, which is one of the first in Houston in 2005, but it really started picking up in 2010. It's become the most common surgery. Several reasons for that. Because you're not bypassing any intestine, there's less vitamin deficiencies. Uh, because you're not bypassing any intestine, there's less risk of ulcers. If you take an intestine and you hook it up to an acid secreting stomach, you do get ulcers. You can't get bowel obstructions. And so it's an easier surgery per, to perform. So there's more surgeons that can perform it. And so for these reasons, sleeve really took off. And there's a, and there's those kind of like patients in general think, oh, a sleeve is going to be easier. Some surgeons think, well, I could do a sleeve. And then if that doesn't work, I could do another surgery. So they do a sleeve for that reason. Hmm. I find that the sleeve works well in young people. It works well in people that have a body mass index less than 50. And in people that don't have a lot of medical problems, uh, there have been some randomized controlled trials that are done now, uh, one in Finland, one in Cleveland Clinic, that have showed a superiority to the gastric bypass as far as management of diabetes. Because remember, with the sleeve, the food's still going down the duodenum. It's not going to affect GIP as much. Uh, and it's not going to affect GLP-1 as much as the gastric bypass will. And so we do, we do get good treatment of diabetes with a sleeve gastrectomy, but we get better treatment with a gastric bypass. We also get better weight loss with a gastric bypass in both of those randomized controlled trials. And so I look at someone, if their body mass index is above 50, I lean towards a bypass. If they're diabetic, I lean towards a bypass.
Yeah. So looking at the guidelines here, just like you you mentioned, it's actually really interesting to see the numbers um, right now. And we'll link to this also um, on our Wellness Fact First Fiction Journal Club page, where um, you guys can check out on Instagram, um, where we link all of our citations. But in the 2020 guidelines for bariatric surgery. So they mentioned that for, just like you said, that for, so the biliopancreatic diversion with the duodenal switch, the target weight loss 35 to 45%. Favorable aspects, they say, very strong metabolic effects, like you mentioned, durable weight loss, effective for patients with a very high BMI, which you mentioned, and also can be used as a second stage after sleep, which you also mentioned. Right. That's the key for it. And the unfavorable aspects they mentioned are malabsorption, um, protein calorie malnutrition, GERD, potential for internal hernias, duodenal dissection, technically challenging, and higher rate of micronutrient deficiencies as compared to the RU and Y gastric bypass. So the RU and Y gastric bypass, they have slightly lower target weight loss, 30 to 35%. They mentioned also strong metabolic effects, standardized techniques, less than 5% major complication rate and effective for GERD with some unfavorable aspects such as few proven revisional options for weight regain, marginal ulcers, and some long-term micronutrient deficiency. So how do you choose between the RU&Y gastric bypass or the duodenal switch? So I've kind of stopped doing the duodenal switch okay. because I did not like the micronutrient deficiency. Gotcha. So I was doing it and I would see tremendous weight loss and the patients love it. There's a like online Facebook group of duodenal switch people that are like militant. They think that any other surgery, they, you know, they're on, they'll, they'll get on someone who's doing a bypass. How can we dare do a bypass? The DS is so much better. And from a weight loss standpoint, it's better. I did not like the way the patients looked. I felt that they just didn't look healthy. I would find micronutrient deficiencies, copper deficiencies. We were seeing SIBO, like uh, uh, bacterial overgrowth syndromes, lots of diarrhea because they weren't absorbing. And so I stopped doing duodenal switch. Now, I am going to start doing a procedure called the single anastomosis duodenal switch. This has recently been popularized. So if we talk, we talk about something called a common channel. The common channel is where digestive enzymes, stuff coming from the pancreas and the liver, mixes with food. If food is sitting in the intestine, but it hasn't seen digestive enzymes, you're not going to absorb it. Now, with the standard duodenal switch, our common channel was 100 to 120 centimeters. What we have found is that you could go as high as a 200 centimeter common channel and not get as many complications. And so with this single anastomosis duodenal switch, what we're doing is we're taking a sleeve so that there's some restriction in how much you eat. We're cutting the intestine right after the stomach and plugging it in about 200 centimeters before the, the colon. So there's about 200 centimeters and you don't get as much malabsorption. Actually, we're probably going to 250. Um, in that surgery, I'm going to start doing because the results are really dramatic. You get almost the same results as you go do with the duodenal switch, but not nearly the amount of macronutrient and micronutrient deficiency. So fascinating. So, so for anyone listening who's thought about bariatric surgery or has been considered for it by their um, physician. So usually with the BMI cutoff, you said for younger individuals and with the BMI, would you say over 35? Okay. So there are pediatric weight loss surgeries going on. I, I stopped wow. at 18, uh, but they have been looking at once 
uh, epiphyseal plates are done growing and it doesn't look like the child's growing anymore. There's been as young as 12 year olds done. Uh, I've done a 17 year old. The children tend to do very well with surgery. So there, there is that, uh, that going on right now. We don't have an upper age limit. Uh, we used to say 65 in our guidelines. I think the guidelines took that out because several studies showed that there were patients benefiting in their 70s. The NIH guidelines that drove us in the early 90s was that you have to have a body mass index above 40 or a body mass index between 35 and 40 if you have a comorbid illness. So in other words, if you have diabetes or you have uh, coronary artery disease or you have uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease or sleep apnea or fatty liver, then you, you, you satisfy requirements. Now, these guidelines are still in place for insurance companies. So for insurance to pay for it or Medicare to pay for it, you have to have a body mass index above 35 or between 35 and 40 with comorbid illness. You will notice in our guidelines, though, that it does say that between 30 and 35, it's appropriate if you have diabetes because the documentation of the benefits of weight loss surgery with diabetes are phenomenal. And this has been approved by a, a joint meeting with the Bariatric Obesity Society, TOS, uh, ASMBS, which is the Surgical Society and the Endocrine Society. And so they all got together and came up with that addition to the guidelines. So uh, it's hard to get insurance approval for that, but it is approved for people that uh, have a BMI between 30 and 35 and are type 2 diabetic. There's three factors that drive me one way or another on the surface. How much you weigh. Because if you weigh BMI above 60 or something, then I'm really looking at that single anesthesis DES. If you're between 50 and 60, I like the gastric bypass. If you're less than 50, the sleeve. There's caveats to that. If you have heartburn or reflux, a sleeve is a horrible procedure. Oh. So if you think back to Laplace's law, we're taking a tube and we're making it smaller. So we're increasing the pressure. You know, remember the radius was in the diameter by four. Uh, so you're really increasing the pressure hugely in the sleeve, and that could drive acid up into the esophagus. Um, and so we see pretty bad results of people that are that have reflux. Now, that's it's interesting because the sleeve can actually make reflux better, but it could also make it a lot worse. And so I tend towards bypass in that situation. Now, understand, I've done thousands of bypasses. There's lots of surgeons out there that have only done sleeves, and you know, if you're a hammer, all the world's a nail, and they're gonna just recommend sleep. But I, I think a bypass is just as safe as a sleeve. Uh, the data kind of spells it out. So in that situation, the bypass. I tend to do a bypass for diabetics, unless you're just like vaguely diabetic and on like one medication like metformin. But if you're like on multiple medications, I really like the bypass. There's a caveat to that. Believe it or not, the gastric bypass can work too well for diabetes. And too well means, if you think about it, if you've been diabetic for several years, you actually get beta cell hyperplasia. So the beta cells are the cells in the pancreas that secrete insulin. And if you're diabetic for a long time, what's happening is you're insulin resistant, right? It's not like type one diabetes where you're not making any insulin. You're actually having to make more and more insulin just to get your cells to work. And so your body becomes almost like a bodybuilder with producing insulin. Now we've made you insulin sensitive. We've gotten the fat out of your cells because you've lost so much weight. So now your cells are working again. They could use carbohydrates again. So now when you eat sugar, it goes into the system really quickly, right? Because we've bypassed so much of the stomach, it's going straight into the intestine instead of sitting in the stomach. It gets absorbed. Your beta cells are like, oh my God, there's sugar. And they shoot out a ton of insulin 
Now you're insulin sensitive and the result is severe hypoglycemia. And we can get this reactive hypoglycemia in bypass patients. And so you can get really, really bad hypoglycemia. So I tend, if someone's like barely diabetic, I actually tend to prefer sleep. Fascinating. That's super interesting. So what would you say for anyone listening that, um, because there's a lot of misconceptions about bariatric surgery, um, actually, even just starting with, you know, I had Yoni Friedhoff on the podcast and we discussed, um, and I also had Marie Spreckley, who you know as well. Yeah. We discussed how obesity is a disease. And I would love for you to bring your take on that, being a surgeon that spent your entire career working in this field, how how often, unfortunately, um, obesity is treated as a just pull yourself up by your bootstrap sort of issue. And if you can just explain your take on this and why that's not the case. Yeah, it's so frustrating because I see so people talk. And so and so many of the people I see talk that are constantly talking on, on social media. The thing I love about your podcast is you bring real experts on. But I see these other people doing the podcast rounds. Maybe they're a scientist that's never seen a patient that's talking right. on mechanisms. Or they're a doctor, but they don't see patients because they're busy writing books and stuff. And they get this idea that if you just do it my way, if you just do what I tell you to do, it'll work. And my poor patients that I I see these patients, they've been obese since they were kids. They went to fat camps when they were younger. They've been brutalized by society, brutalized by doctors, especially. Awful. And this idea, especially when you look at the functional MRI, when we look at their brain and we look at their their responses to food and their responses to food cues, it's just so different than you and me. And unless you've walked a mile in their shoes, totally. you have no idea. I've got a sister that, you know, my genetics in my family, half my family is skinny, half my family is obese. And I have one sister just had different genetics than me. And she just, and can you imagine having me as, as a brother? I put her on diets and, and exercise regimens made her do triathlons, but it didn't matter. She needed that surgery to give her that help in order to be successful. And that's the thing that I think people miss. You look at someone and think that they feel like you do, but you don't realize they're hungrier than you are. They're not as satisfied when they eat as you are. They Their metabolism is totally off. I mean, I get these metabolic rates on people. I, I hear a lot of experts, uh, what's his name you had on uh, such a great- Brian Ponser's talk with you was great. And, and it's very true. Like the body's control of metabolism is unbelievable. I'm telling that my patient to go and exercise in order to lose weight, it almost I get the opposite effect with them. And so I get to see these patients go through all these different things. And I do medical weight loss. So I do diet. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to hang up the scalpel. There's times where I've gone fanatical about diet. In fact, at one point, you know, I'm into plant-based diets. At one point, I was like, the answer is plant-based diets. And my father, an old curmudgeon surgeon, <laughs> was like, he actually said to me, because I was doing, I was talking to people out of surgery uh, quite a bit for a while. And uh, he said to me, you know what you're doing is, is you're, you're committing malpractice. Wow. And I was like, how am I committing malpractice? Well, he referred to and, and should the Swedish obesity study. Because the Swedish obesity study was an amazing study. So they've got a nationalized health system. They randomized people. Well, it wasn't truly randomized, but it was kind of, let's let's call it prospectively followed. A group of 2,000 people that had weight loss surgery, 2,000 people that had medical weight management. They've now followed them out. The, the median follow-up was 24 years, but they have people out 30, 35 years. So people are worried that they're like, I'm scared I'll die during the surgery. No one dies during the surgery. That is so unbelievably uncommon. But your life expectancy actually increased by three to four years having weight loss surgery. And those were 
weight loss surgery is not done nearly as well as weight control now. So I would say the life expectancy uh, improvement is even higher than that. And so he was saying, you are taking away a life extension on these people. And in fact, we went and we looked at <laughs> in our clinic, his patients getting surgery versus my patients not getting surgery. And there was no comparison. The surgery group just blew out that even years out. And when you look at our data, we have something called a Center of Excellence Program, which is really interesting. American College of Surgeons set up a database. They set up a committee to inspect different surgery programs. And in order to actually get certified to do the surgery and get insurance approval to do surgery, you have to go through a very extensive approval process. No one should ever get surgery done by someone or a hospital that's not a center of excellence. So we have to enter every single surgery, every single complication into an enormous database. And so we have these unbelievable databases that we can now ask really good questions and get really long-term feedback on. And through these databases, we've learned a lot about what these surgeries do and what the risks are. And the risks are far less than what you hear in the media. And the benefits just blow everything out of the water. I mean, it, it, when you look at the percent weight loss with a weight loss surgery, the number of people getting over 20 to 30% weight loss 10 years out is 40% of the patients that get Unbelievable. the surgery. Right. And, and so people say, oh, what about weight loss failure? There was a paper that said 70% of people regain weight and are failures. You know what our measure for failure is? If you're not losing 50% of your excess weight, that's considered failure. That's not a failure. No. That is a huge success. Uh, so we've had, and now we've discussed it. And so we've, what we consider failure is probably unrealistic and we need to reevaluate failure because we know just 10% weight loss is a huge benefit to someone and not seen in Weight Watchers or any of this kind. You know, I appreciate too about you, Garth, that you and I share in common, although you've been a physician longer, uh, significantly longer than I have. But, you know, we're both enthusiastic about diet. We're both enthusiastic about lifestyle change and all of these things. But I think that what serves our patients best is that we don't see it as a dichotomy of guideline-directed surgical or medical therapy versus only diet or lifestyle. Um, and we, I think, you, you know, you see it as, you know, complementary. People can obviously, they, they should, and, and you recommend people do both if they, um, rec- if they are a good candidate for surgery, you're obviously also recommending healthy lifestyle changes. And I think too often this dichotomy of that surgery is a failure or surgery is, you know, some sort of, yeah, personal failure is so wrong and it's so harming to patients. Yeah, I hate it. And so many of my patients have so much guilt about surgery, they're afraid to tell anybody about it. And I just look at it as like, you you got a treatment to help you make good lifestyle changes. That's what we talk about. It's a tool to make good lifestyle changes. Now, I will say the flip side is that so many surgeons are just surgeons right? Yeah. and they don't see the lifestyle part of it. And so like it killed me when I first started going to weight loss surgery conferences because I was very into lifestyle. When I first started going to weight loss surgery conferences and I spent a week at a weight loss surgery conference and we never spoke about lifestyle. That's crazy. And someone would regain weight on a surgery. This kills me. People regaining weight on a surgery and they're like, well, what other surgery? we can do instead of stopping and saying, well, wait a second. Yeah. Cause there is a lifestyle component. There's totally. No of course. And, and so it needs to be a combination between lifestyle and surgery. But when you combine lifestyle and surgery, and some of the best, like there's a, a trial called the stampede trial, which was a randomized controlled trial done at Cleveland clinic where they have a really good lifestyle program and they compared the lifestyle to surgery there. 
I mean, it's just not comparison when it came to diabetes management. And this was lifestyle and medicine versus surgery. And there was no comparison. And so it's hard to look at that data and say, you need to have one or the other. You really need to have both. One of the biggest things that I've seen for my patients who are uh, nervous of bariatric surgery, um, and I even even asked some of my followers to uh, on uh, Instagram to submit their thoughts, comments, concerns, or questions. One of the biggest one I saw repeatedly over and over again is that that I'd love for you to clarify is that all bariatric surgery ends up failing anyway, and everyone ends up regaining uh, the weight. Absolutely not true. Not even close to true. We're accruing our Center of Excellence data, so we don't have our long-term data from that yet. But when you look at the obesity, um, the Swedish obesity study uh, had excellent long-term weight loss, and that was with a surgery called the vertical banded gastroplasty, an old surgery not done anymore, similar to the lap band, and a primitive view of the gastric bypass. Now that we're looking at the limb lengths a little bit better, we're going to have even better long-term weight loss. I I would say that 40% of people keep off a highly significant amount of weight. We're talking, so in the, the trials, if we're looking at weight percent weight loss, I would say about 40% of people lose 20 to 30% of their weight 10 years out, 10 years out. That's, That's really a unbelievable. whopping number. It's unbelievable. When you look, when That's you look life-changing. At, life-changing. But when you look at the 15 to 20% weight loss, which is still unbelievable, life-changing, it's about 75%. Unbelievable. Yeah, which means that there's, you know, just a few percentage of people that are doing less than that. And the other problem we've had is that obesity medicine has used percent weight loss. Bariatric surgery has used percent excess weight loss, oh. which is very different. Percent excess weight loss is how much is your excess weight? What percentage of that did you lose versus what's the percent of your total weight? Probably a little bit of a better value, but because it's so off of what everybody else is using, we're now switching to percent weight loss but it's kind of thrown off some of our studies a bit. But suffice it to say, the surgery is very successful long-term. Now, there will be people that regain weight. Um, I see lots of people that regain weight. Some of them regain a really significant amount of weight. I don't typically see people get to where they used to be. Almost always when I see these people, they're making significant lifestyle missteps. They're eating frequently, grazing as we call it which is a problem because the surgery makes it where, like, let's say the surgery used to eat a 500 calorie breakfast. Now you're satisfied with a 250 calorie breakfast. But if you then two hours later eat another 250 calories and then it's lunchtime, you've already eaten 500 calories. There's been no difference. So what's your thought about the combination? I remember you mentioning at the last academic meeting you're at that there's discussion about combining bariatric surgery with GLP-1s or things like GLP-1 GIPs like terzeptide or even, you know, Wegovy, things like that. We've had great studies on that right now. Um, and there's some ongoing studies. I think it's great. I think if you look at something like a sleeve, so we're going to get more weight regain with a sleeve than with a bypass. Gotcha. I think that's a great place where you add a GLP-1. Because like I said, the, the food isn't going down into the, the distal small intestine as fast as it would with a gastric bypass. We don't get as much of a GLP-1 effect. So giving them a GLP-1 effect is going to help. Secondly, with gastric bypass, they have found that people that don't have as much of a GLP-1 response at two years have more weight regain. So they're a great person that you're going to now supplement with a GLP-1. 
Uh, I've had great response with things as simple as fentanyl with these with, with patients that, that are put up. So combining medicine with surgery is very, very powerful uh, and definitely something that needs to be considered uh, to be more standard. And this was the first time that I've been to our national meeting where that was strongly talked about. Uh, and I do think that's going to be the way of the future. Can you also explain for anyone listening who may be just nervous because it's surgery, you know, you immediately picture just someone just chopping you open. Can you explain what laparoscopic surgery is and what the post-op kind of recovery is like? Yeah, it's it, it's so different than what people imagine. I, I got to say there's a, a big difference. Who you pick as a surgeon does matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done multiple studies on this. Volumes matter. Uh, experience matters. But for a experienced surgeon, like patients come in and go home the next day. With laparoscopic surgery, we're making multiple small, tiny incisions. And then we're putting little tubes in the belly. We blow it up with gas and we put cameras inside, little camera. And then we can see around inside. Some guys use a robot, which means they take the instruments and attach it to a special robot. And then they put their hands in this little robotic device and they can monitor things on the inside using this robot. Some people just use laparoscopic devices where... They've got the device inside and they're using it with their own hands looking at the screen. Uh, that doesn't matter much which way the surgery does it, whatever they're more comfortable with. The surgery the bypass usually takes about an hour and a half. The sleep That's usually quick. takes about 45 minutes. It's quick now. This is different than the old days where it was six, seven hours. People go home the next day. The complication rates are exceedingly low. And we monitor them consistently you know, with our Centers of Excellence programs. Which isn't to say there can't be a complication. We used to worry about things called leaks. Those could still happen where a staple line comes undone. You get a massive infection. I mean, I haven't seen it in my patients in years and years, but it can happen. Uh, But it's just very rare. Bleeds can happen. We give people blood thinners to prevent blood clots because that's a risk. Um, But these are all very seldom. Most people go back to work within a week. Um, We don't like heavy lifting for about three weeks, but people are back up and active very quickly. Back to work in a week. That's amazing. Yeah. And so it's it, it, it's not what it used to be. It's not what people picture it to be. Uh, it, it, it's much less invasive. So for the right patient, there is significant mortality benefit in bariatric surgery. And I know that there's even data with regards to, of course, patients with diabetes, hypertension, but also even heart failure. Sleep apnea, so much can improve with bariatric surgery. And as you mentioned, the surgery becomes so much more sophisticated, far less, you know, archaic like surgery people may imagine when they're they're sitting here thinking. So for anyone listening that's been on the fence and this kind of reassure them a bit, what's a good way to find a good surgeon, um, a center of excellence, something like that? What's your advice? A lot of the larger academic hospitals are typically going to have good programs, but I know some surgeons that are private practice surgeons that are in smaller hospitals that do a fantastic job. In fact, I moved my practice out of medical center to uh, one of our Methodist hospitals on the outside just because I like the smaller hospital feel. You want to look up, so the American Society of Metabolic Bariatric Surgery and the American College of Surgeons have a list of center of excellence. So you can just look up American College Surgeon Center of Excellence and find a hospital near you that has a center of excellence. I would ask your surgeon about their experience level, numbers of cases they've done, number of cases they do a year. I think those are important. I think if you're doing less than 50 cases a year, especially if you're doing less than 20 cases a year, there's going to be exceptions. I know a surgeon who's a fantastic surgeon. He only does 20 cases a year, but he does a lot of other surgeries. 
he's good. But those are going to be the exception. I, I, if I was going to get it done, I'd want someone doing more than 50 cases a year. Um, so those are the kind of questions I would ask. Uh, if they're part of a center of excellence program, then you know that they're being monitored for their excellence. And there's multiple programs, multiple hospitals now. It used to be hard to find a surgeon. I would caution you that you want a surgeon that does a variety of surgeries. You don't want to go to a surgeon that just does sleeves. And so I would ask about that. Because if they just do sleeves and you ask them what surgery they should get, they're going to tell you to get a sleeve. I have to also do a pro, go to a program that has a very good after program. Because this isn't just about getting the surgery and being done. You want a program that has dietitians, that has behavioral therapists, that has support groups, which they're supposed to have as part of a center of excellence anyway. I, I would look at a program that has an affiliation with a bariatrician or a medical weight loss doctor uh, or a surgeon that's board certified also in medical weight loss so that if you need that medical support, you're going to get that also. Those are a lot of things to look for. There are a lot of online groups such as um, Obesity Help and Facebook that have these online groups where you could hear reviews of different surgeons. Of course, there's caution with that. A lot of times you only hear the negative stories and not the positives. Like if a surgeon does 500 cases in a year and he has, you know, 20 reviews, there's probably 480 that are, you know, good. Maybe the 20 are complainers, but in general, you can get to know a little bit about surgeons uh, in, in that regard. That's great. That's super helpful. And actually the last thing I wanted to ask you, I, which I can't believe I almost skipped over. I think my, um, my listeners would kill me is, uh, to also, I just want you to touch on briefly this, uh, the bariatric procedure selection uh, when it comes to risk benefits for weight loss, the ones that are endoscopic. So the ones that are done by GI, they have significantly lower success rates, significantly lower weight loss. So what would be the utility of doing one of those procedures? I, I just don't like them right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did some of them for a while. First of all, insurance won't pay. So you're right. paying cash out of pocket. It's about $13,000. And we have surgeries that work and that are safe. I don't find that the endoscopic surgery is that much safe. Like this, so there's a procedure called the endoscopic sleeve. So we're making a sleeve, but doing it through a scope to the mouth. But I, I don't find it to be any that much safer than a regular sleeve gastrectomy. Right. And we don't have long-term durability studies on it. And less weight loss. Yeah, and less weight loss. And so I just don't see the feasibility of it, that situation. The places where I do like it would be in a situation where someone's regained weight and their pouch is big and you could make the pouch smaller, though I did that for a while. I was not happy with the results. Looking at some of the percentages of the target weight loss for those procedures, they're all notably lower than somaglutide. They're they are lower, lower than, than doing, they're lower than doing a GLP one. So I mean, considering the risk-benefit ratio, we know some, something like semaglutide has an improvement in cardiovascular risk in patients with type 2 diabetes. We know it helps with hypertension, hyperlipidemia. And we know it's a safe and effective medication. 16% weight loss at 68 weeks or terzepatide, 22.5% weight loss at, you know, um, over a year. I mean, that blows these procedures out of the water. And I would, I would take that 16% if I thought it was a lifelong 16%. The, the problem is- They have to stay on the medication, right? Yeah, because you have to stay on the medication lifelong, which may be a problem. But the, the thing with that 16% is that the stomach, if it's, a, if it's not completely separated from its other cell, mm -hmm. it's going to grow back. Like in trauma surgery, we used to staple off the stomach if there was a duodenal injury. Mm -hmm. uh, and it always recanalized. So unless you're actually removing it, 
or separating it. It just doesn't work. Now, you brought up an interesting point there when you said, "What?" I, I think you were alluding to the fact that if someone's really sick, maybe an endoscopic surgery would be better than a, an actual surgery under anesthesia. No, I, I don't think so. I, so my impression, my non-bariatric surgery impression, but my impression just from uh, a layman's uh, idea, idea is that after reading the guidelines, I can find no robust reason to have one of the endoscopic weight loss procedures no. when you have such mortality benefit and robust benefit and weight loss benefit from true bariatric surgery, like bypass and things like that. Right. Or you could, for even more weight loss, more a safer, more effective to me would be obviously using a GLP-1 or a GLP-1 GIP. Right. And, and that's true. And in fact, we do the surgery on some incredibly sick people. In fact, I've done people in preparation for, because, you know, for transplant, you have to have a yeah. body mass of 35. So I've done people uh, in preparation for cardiac transplant uh, with EFs to the you know, amazing 5% EFs. I've done people on LVADs. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, you could do these surgeries um, safely, even in really sick patients. Unbelievable. Well, Dr. Davis, thank you so much for demystifying no, all things bariatric surgery. So for anyone listening, so if anyone's listening and they're like, you know what, I think I'm going to fly to Texas to get my surgery done by you. <laughs> yeah. Where does everyone find you both professionally and on social media? So on social media, it's Dr. Garth Davis. I've got things blocked right now, but I'll probably open back up just because <laughs> of all the, scam the, the scammers taking my stuff. Every other day, for anyone listening, every other day, there is a fake profile. There's there's literally thousands of fake profiles thousands. made with your picture. Thousands. thousands. Unbelievable. Right. It's crazy. Uh, so I'm a little bit social weird. It has uh, a blue check mark. So only follows on the blue check mark. Yeah. 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 And uh, so Dr. Garth Davis, uh, I've got a website, drgarthdavis.com. Uh, you could Google me and see my Methodist website. Our office number is 832-522-8155. I will do virtual visits, but only if you're in Texas, because it's got to be licensed. Right. Licensed. Yeah. Okay, perfection. Well, thank you so much. All right, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness bag you'd like debunked next and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction and be sure to tune in next week.